Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Oh man, this is fun. Um, first thing, quickly get this out of the way. This is not a prop. I'm not going to like bring it in later as some clever sermon illustration. This is because I'm sweating profusely. Um, and so I'll be using it like as we go, I'll just be doing stuff like this. Um, I may hit the mic on accident. I just want you to like roll with me if at all possible. I sweat when it's like 40 degrees in the gym and I'm preaching. So it's humid out here, as you can tell, probably. Um, so just don't judge. I, I'm not sending any judgment that way. You don't send any back. And we'll be good. It'll be a great, great morning. Um, same if you're watching on the live stream, especially, right? I mean, like you're inside, so you can't be judging the towel right now. Uh, okay, back on August 23rd of 2020, we kicked off this thing we've been in for the last nine months, a year in the life of Jesus. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is us taking a journey together through the life and work of Jesus Christ during his time on earth. We started off with kind of all the predictions leading up to his coming into the world. We went in after that into his birth, his childhood, his transition from very private life to very public ministry, his teachings, his miracles. And then we just finished up his final week on earth in Jerusalem, that passion week where he lays his life down on the cross and then raises it up again three days later. Now from his miraculous birth to his death and resurrection, we have done our best to cover it all over nine months. Why would we do that? Why is it so important? Well, we decided to spend an entire year journeying through the life of Jesus in part because he is the most influential person to ever live. I talked about these statistics back in August when we kicked off this year, but I'm going to share them again with you because I just find them to be so compelling. So did you know that Jesus never wrote a book, never wrote a book, and yet there are more books written about him than about any other subject in history. And the best-selling book of, of all time, the Bible, is also, you know, he's a central character of it. Jesus never composed a song, but there is more music written about him than any other subject in history. He never painted a canvas or sculpted a stone, but more art has been made about Jesus than any other subject in history. He spent the majority of his recorded life closely interacting with about 20 people. But today, one third of the global population identify as his followers. Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from his birthplace. And yet you can find his followers, Christians, in almost every city, town, and village across the world. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't just the most influential person who ever lived. If you consider yourself a Christian, he is the foundation upon which everything else is built. He isn't just the namesake of our faith. He is the embodiment of it. John makes this clear in the opening lines of his New Testament account of Jesus' life. He uses the nickname Word for Jesus. Here's what he says. In the beginning, the Word, that is Jesus, already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God the embodiment of the divine. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing that was created except through him. 
The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And then verse 14 says, So the word became humid, or the word became flesh, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. So when God wanted to reveal himself to the world he created, he didn't write a book. He didn't send a sign or perform a miracle. When God wanted to reveal himself to us, he became a person. When God wanted to spend time with us, he made his home among us. Jesus is God in the flesh, God with skin on. In his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul says it like this, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. We don't have to wonder what God is like because he has shown himself to us in Jesus. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about a year in the life of Jesus that's so vitally important for us to all come around and understand. Jesus didn't just come to show us what God is like. He came to show us how humans were always supposed to be what you and I were supposed to be like, not just what God is like, but what we're supposed to be like, how we are supposed to live. Throughout this year, we've been calling this simply the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus? How do we follow Jesus as we pursue the way of Jesus? So over the past year, we haven't just studied the life and work of Jesus as an academic exercise. We have attempted to put the way of Jesus into practice in our everyday lives. Last Sunday, we began the final teaching series of our year in the life of Jesus. It's called Therefore Go. And it's all about this thing called the Great Commission. In fact, Therefore Go is a direct quote from Jesus as he gives his followers this Great Commission. Here's the full thing. Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything, obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always even to the very end of the age. So last week I said we're calling this series Therefore Go because at its core the Great Commission involves movement. Jesus structured the Great Commission in such a way that his call for us to go, to therefore go, is actually intrinsic to everything else that he says in the Great Commission. He says that we're supposed to go and make disciples, that we're supposed to go and baptize, that we're supposed to go and teach But you may have noticed, as I just read that, that therefore go, that quote, is actually not the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in the Great Commission. His first words are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we often just kind of gloss over this part, right? Either because it doesn't seem that important, we've read it a bunch of times, or because we want to get to the go statements, we like the action of the Great Commission, Or maybe we skip over it because we don't really love the idea of someone or something having all authority in our lives or just in general. Because, you see, in the simplest terms, authority is about power, right? The dictionary actually defines authority as the power to control, judge, or prohibit the action of others. If you think about it, power and authority are pretty important topics in our world right now. We're having a lot of conversations We live in a cultural moment in which the legitimacy of various authorities is constantly being questioned. We are collectively asking questions like, who has power? How are they wielding it? 
Did they get it in an appropriate way or an inappropriate way? And should they be allowed to keep whatever authority or power that they have? Now, on the flip side, we're constantly questioning what systems and structures and individuals have come together to keep certain people from having power or authority at all. Historically oppressed and marginalized groups are making it clear that they will not settle for a powerless existence regardless of what those in authority positions might say. And then perhaps maybe most pertinent to our time together today, we continually feel kind of lied to and manipulated and even abandoned by many of the authority figures in our lives and in our world. It seems that there is an inverse correlation between how much power someone has and how much integrity someone has. You've noticed this before? It's not always true. There are certainly exceptions to it. But a lot of times, the more powerful the person, the lower their seeming integrity is. And as I said, there are notable exceptions, but this spans really across profession and religion and political affiliation. Most of us have been around in this world long enough to experience firsthand that old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when someone says, even someone like Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, we can understandably be a little bit taken aback. Now, this was even more true for the people who heard these words directly from Jesus 2,000 years ago. In fact, I guarantee you that this opening line of the Great Commission, it would have been the most shocking part of what Jesus had said to the people who first heard it. Just like us, they were used to a number of different authority figures wielding power, some mostly good, some not so good. First, the biggest one in their kind of area was the Jewish religious leadership. Now, even though these men appealed to the higher authorities of God and Moses and the old covenant legal system, most of them used their power to exploit and oppress God's people. They had a difficult relationship with kind of the average everyday person in the Jewish religious leadership. Next, there was the Roman government and military. Remember, they had defeated Israel, and they're now occupying Israel at this point. So even among people the most devout, there were arguments about who had authority and who did not. Some believed that they should be submitting to Rome, while others believed that Rome was usurping authority and power from God. Some people believed in total submission to the Jewish temple authorities. Others did not. They believed in a more personal relationship with God. There's a very difficult time. It's similar to what we're talking about today. So when Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, he is effectively saying, I am in charge. Not Rome, not the religious leaders, not Moses, not the old covenant laws. Me. I am in charge. What I say goes. It was also a claim of divinity. Jesus is saying, I have ultimate authority because I am the ultimate authority. I am God in the flesh. But that statement, it wasn't the only shocking part of the Great Commission. You see, Jesus' claim to have all authority, it sets up his very next sentence. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus says, I have all authority and I'm using it to tell you to make disciples of all nations. All authority, all nations. Now the make disciples command by itself, that wouldn't have been surprising at all. 
You see, discipleship was not only what they'd been participating in with Jesus for the last three years. It was, always, it was also the most common kind of training mode in their world. That's kind of how they did things. You see, Jewish religious teachers called rabbis would select a group of people to apprentice under them as their disciples. And each of these disciples would be trained in their rabbis' beliefs and behaviors with the eventual goal of becoming a rabbi themselves and someday having their own disciples to train. Now, although there were some differences between Jesus' discipleship methods and the normal rabbi's discipleship methods, most notably that Jesus included women and uneducated men, Jesus did basically the same things I just mentioned with his group that the rabbis did with theirs. He trained them in his beliefs and behaviors with the understanding that someday they would do the same for others. So when Jesus tells them, go and make disciples, they would have simply assumed, okay, it's time. We've kind of graduated from Jesus' apprenticeship program. It's time for us to go out and do this thing ourselves. We disciple people just as Jesus has discipled us. But here's, this is incredible. What would have been both shocking and absolutely radical was Jesus' emphasis on all. All authority belongs to Jesus, and his followers are told to go and make disciples of all nations. All authority and all nations. Now, you don't need a, a seminary degree or training in the Greek language of the New Testament to understand what all means. It means all. It means everyone. When he says all authority, it means I have all the authority. When he says all nations, it means all people. Make disciples of everyone. And it's only by demonstrating and declaring that he has all authority that Jesus is able to make a statement like this. Why? Well, because it's in direct contradiction to the covenant with Moses and to various Old Testament laws concerning who was considered clean and acceptable and who was not. With this statement that Jesus is making here, this radical statement that we have heard a million times and probably don't even think about anymore if you have church background, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he is starting something completely new. He was creating a new kingdom, one that encompassed all of heaven and all of earth, and it was going to include everyone, a new kingdom with all people. In his book called Irresistible, Andy Stanley puts it like this. He says, when Jesus announced the inauguration of this new covenant, it marked the beginning of the end of the old one. While his short ministry served as a transition between the two, it was clear that he didn't intend for his followers to blend the two together. Jesus left no room for a blended covenant model. Not only had he explained this several times before he death, his death, he restated it in his final farewell address in this great commission. You've read or perhaps heard these words read dozens of times. And as you read them this time, count the number of references to Moses or the Old Testament law. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Andy Stanley says, if you were counting... That would be none. No references to Moses, to the old way, to the old covenant. Jesus claimed all authority. If someone has all authority, they are the only authority to whom one need appeal. Implication, in the old days, Moses was your guy. Those days are over. 
Something new has come. Someone new has come. Jesus said at a different point that he had come to fulfill everything that had been said by Moses in the old covenant laws. He did it all. And then with his final words, Jesus is commissioning his followers to partner with him in the task of advancing his new kingdom into the world. He has been given all authority. And what are his first words in the great commission? What's the first thing he does with all his authority, with his unlimited power? He makes the most radically inclusive statement that the world had ever heard. Go and make disciples of everyone, of all nations. Go and welcome anyone and everyone into my new kingdom. And it's beautiful because we know from history that that small group of people, they take that most radically inclusive statement in history and they create the most radically inclusive group of people in history, which was the very first church. In his book, Surprise the World, Mike Frost talks about how the early church's posture played out in the Roman Empire in which they lived. The people that led the Roman Empire, even all the way up to Caesar, they had no idea how a group like the first church with seemingly nothing in common was not only coming together, but they were coming together in equality and they were spending their own time and their own money on serving strangers, on helping their community, expecting nothing in return. Here's what the book says. In the miserable world of the Roman Empire, Christians not only proclaimed the mercy of God, they also demonstrated it. They not only fed the poor, they welcomed all comers, regardless of their socioeconomic status. The noblemen embraced the slave. Moreover, Christians opened their fellowship to anyone, irrespective of ethnicity, and they promoted social relationship between the sexes and within families. They were literally the most surprising alternative society, and their conduct raised an insatiable curiosity among the average Roman. Isn't that incredible? The first church was so inclusive of everyone and so servant-hearted, so merciful, so gracious that the Roman government that occupied them marveled at them. It goes on to talk about that so many people were actually converting to Christianity and the Roman government was trying to snuff it out, that they had to create their own rival social programs to help the poor, to help the disenfranchised because the Christians were doing such an incredible job of it. It's amazing. But this transformation, right, from kind of more exclusive to more inclusive, it didn't happen overnight. In fact, God had to make clear over and over and over again that this new kingdom, it really was for anyone and everyone. These first followers of Jesus, that first church, they were confronted continually by personal and societal prejudices. I imagine it it going something like this. Okay, Jesus, we know you said to make disciples of all people, but you surely can't mean those people, right? Like that kind of person. Jesus would say, no, no, I I meant them. All people means all people. One of the biggest prejudices harbored by the early church centered around race and ethnicity. Many of the Jewish Christians had been taught their entire lives that Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, were unclean. They were an abomination, Through the Mosaic Covenant and the Old Testament law, they were forbidden from associating with certain ones of them at all, lest they become contaminated as well. 
Now, you can imagine how difficult it would have been being taught it was illegal to associate with someone, to move from that to being a part of the same church family with them. Peter, you guys probably know him if you have some church background, Peter had a particularly hard time with this. So much so that God basically stages a divine intervention with him about it. We find the story in Acts chapter 10. I'm going to summarize it for us today. But if you have time this week, you should go back and read all of Acts chapter 10. It is an incredible story. So one day, Peter is praying. He's up on the rooftop of his house. He's praying. And God causes him to fall into this trance. And then God shows him a collection of animals that Jewish people were forbidden to eat. And Peter hears a voice in the trance. It says, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter says, this is Acts 10, 14 and 15. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Then the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens three times, like back to back to back. Now, as you can imagine, Peter comes out of the trance. He's a little shaken up. And when he does, he hears people downstairs calling his name. And so he walks down and he finds this group of men sent by a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion and a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion and a Gentile. He is both unclean and a soldier in the military that is currently occupying the Jewish land. Not a great combination for Peter. This is someone Peter would have despised. But these men invite Peter to come and spend the night at Cornelius' house. And again, the voice of God comes to Peter and he hears him say, Peter, accept the invitation. Go to Cornelius' house. So Peter kind of reluctantly obeys. He's so reluctant, in fact, that when he arrives at Cornelius' house the next day, I'm going to quote the first words out of his mouth. This is straight from scripture. I'm not ad-libbing or anything. This is what Peter says. Sits down. Imagine Peter walking in to the room, sits down in the living room at Cornelius' house, first words out of his mouth. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should call no one impure or unclean. He sits down. That's the first thing he says. You know, I'm not supposed to be here. God says that you're gross. But he told me that you're not anymore. And so I'm going to try to wrap my mind around that. If you give me a second, you know. Not exactly the best way to make friends and influence people. But you have to admire Peter's authenticity in this moment, right? He's being real. But you also have to admire the restraint shown by Cornelius and his household. No one got up and punched him that we know of. No one threw him out of the house. It's pretty incredible. Peter goes on to say, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. As a powerful statement. Peter, now notice, Peter says, I now realize, like right now, in this moment, I now realize. The same guy who spent three years with Jesus in his inner circle. He saw Jesus interacting with people who were considered unclean, considered outside of the family of God, breaking every rule and tradition. Jesus was going to do that. Still, Peter didn't get it. Peter was one of the people who heard from the lips of Jesus this call that he has all authority to go make all disciples of all nations. Didn't get it then. God had to do this divine intervention to change Peter's heart. I now realize only then, right then, was was Peter truly submitting to Jesus' authority. He had heard 
Jesus say, I've got all authority, but he wasn't really living like that. So he submits to Jesus' authority and begins welcoming everyone in to this new kingdom. This is all over the book of Acts. We see divine interventions like this for the purpose of radical inclusion, literally all throughout this book. So some of the early Christians believed that people with disabilities had been cursed by God and they shouldn't be included in the kingdom. So in Acts 3, God sends Peter to heal diseases and welcome those who had been crippled since birth into the kingdom. Radical, divine intervention. Others believed that the very poor shouldn't be included. So in Acts 6, God sends Stephen to give food to the hungry and welcome in those who are poor into the kingdom of God. Radical, divine intervention. Still others thought that sexual minorities weren't allowed in God's kingdom. So in Acts chapter 8, God sends Philip to witness and baptize the Ethiopian eunuch who has just been forbidden from worshiping God in the temple. Radical inclusion. This happens over and over and over again. These early followers of Jesus had to keep asking themselves some version of this same question. Am I going to submit to the authority of Jesus and make disciples of all people? Or I'm going to submit to my own prejudice and exclude some people. I'm going to say that again because I think we need to hear it again. Am I going to submit to the authority of Jesus and welcome in all people? Or am I going to submit to my own prejudice and exclude some people? When they succumbed to their own prejudices and built walls to keep people out, Jesus just kept faithfully coming in, knocking the walls down, and reminding his followers that they have no authority to exclude anyone. Jesus is saying, it's my party. I get to make the guest list. And I've said everybody can come. It's my table. I get to do the seating assignments. And I've said that everybody has a place. Jesus was given all authority. And he is using his authority to welcome all people into his kingdom. But just like the first church, the modern church, us, We are filled with flawed and broken human beings. You are listening to one right now. So we still struggle to fully submit to Jesus' authority. Sometimes it's because of prejudices we harbor. Other times, I really think this is true. It's at least true for me. I don't want to put it on any of y'all. But sometimes it's true for me. It's because I just, I don't like submitting to someone else's authority all the time, you know? Like I want to do things my way. I can be kind of a control freak. But here's the thing, the thing that I've come to know and that in my best moments I live my life by, Jesus is an authority worth trusting. We are in a world, in a society that is filled with authorities who are not worth trusting. I get it. But I promise Jesus is an authority worth trusting. This is true because he's God. It's true because he demonstrated his power through the resurrection, but it's also true, y'all, because of his character, because of who he is, because power in the hands of Jesus, it doesn't corrupt, it cultivates, it grows things, it gives birth to things, it restores things. And here's why, I don't want you to miss this, because Jesus is the only authority who wields his power for the singular purpose of love. Jesus is the only authority who wields his power with the singular purpose of love. Remember, this is what scripture teaches, that God is love. That everything he does is for the purpose of love. Even things we don't understand, even things we may not be able to wrap our heads around, we can trust 
God. We can trust that he is loving, that he is who he says he is because he is this authority worth trusting. He loves us. He loves each and every person. He loves the people that you don't like. He loves them just as much as you do. This is why he told us to love our enemies because he knew that you can't love someone for very long without love transforming them from your enemy into your friend. See, Jesus not only fully loves each and every person, he wants us to love each and every person fully and completely too. That is why he is an authority worth trusting. So here's my question for us as we close. Is Jesus the ultimate authority in your life? Is Jesus the ultimate authority in your life? Meaning, is he the lens through which you see everyone and everything? Are his words and his ways the ones you live by? Are you doing everything you can to see people the way he sees people? Are you welcoming all people in the way he's asked you to? Is he the ultimate authority in your life? If not, I think he should be. I'm not here to twist your arm. I'm not here to make you. I'm not here to tell you 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 can't come back if he isn't. But I'm telling you that it's better. It's better. You will experience exponentially more hope and joy and love if you live the way that Jesus has shown us how to live and empowered us by his spirit to live. It's better. I promise he is worth trusting. So let me pray. God, I thank you so much for this morning, even as the rain comes down around this enclosure, even as I watch people on the corners scrunching in so their shoulders don't get wet, picking up their purses so that the water doesn't get to them, God, I am so overjoyed that we are here together that we may come from all different backgrounds and places and lifestyles. We may have all different understandings and be in all different places on this journey of following you, God. But we are here together, whether we are in person or online, we are here together. I'm thankful, God. I'm thankful that even though we don't do it imperfectly, our church is a place where we attempt to take seriously this command to make disciples of all people, all people. I pray that as we go out from this place, as we shut off the live stream, God, as we go about this coming week, that you would remind us, God, that you are the ultimate authority, that you have given that authority to Jesus and that he has shown us the way to live. He has shown us how to to live and love and treat people and walk through this world in humility and kindness and sacrificial love. I pray that we would be embodiments of that just as he is an embodiment of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name.